We are week two into our fulfilled series where we're looking at different prophecies of uh, in, in the old covenant uh, that have been fulfilled in Christ. And so, the reason that we're looking at that is there are a lot of different religions out there uh, that claim to have truth, and uh, and so they all have an idea of, of saying this is what we need to do to be right with God or ourselves or what salvation is and all this. How are we supposed to know which one is true? Right? Which one actually corresponds to reality? Because we're staking our, our eternities on these things. And I think God was uh, very kind. He understood this. And so he gave us something objective, not just subjective feelings or saying, you know what, you grew up in this family, therefore you're going to be a Christian or whatever. He gave us some objective things, tests to make sure what we believe is actually from him. And one of the things that he did uh, for us in doing that is he gave us what were called uh, these predictive prophecies. And so uh, uh, there's, there's two kinds of prophecy. One kind of prophecy is, is it uh, basically describes a descriptive prophecy. Uh, the prophets would go and say, you've got wickedness in your heart. And he would tell truth about people, what was already there. And then there were these prescriptive prophecies, prophecies that, that, uh, that foretold the future. And uh, those ones were there to make sure that we would validate that the prophets were legitimate. Well, there were 300 prophecies about the Messiah, so we'd be able to identify him when he came. And so that's what this series is. We're looking at a few of those. Last week we looked at how Jesus fulfilled a 700-year-old prophecy on how he is Savior. And just the detail in that, I hope that you were, just it strengthened your faith as much as it did mine, the amazing thing. Today we're going to look at another aspect of that, and that is him as sacrifice. Of course, before we do that, we want to make sure that we get into God's Word and get God's Word into us. And so so our memory verse for this series is Ephesians 2.8. And this is what it says. It's for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. It is by grace that you have been saved. I think so many of us, we, we want to hold on to our own burden, right? We want to earn our, our way back to God. This is part of our nature. People have always wanted to be able to do it ourselves, right? Raw human ingenuity. But how do we save ourselves? And, and so we, we try to live our lives in a certain way and do certain things and follow different religious practices in order to be saved. And it leads us down a road we call religion, all these kinds of rules, things that don't make sense, regulations. It leads us down a path ultimately of self-righteousness because it's based on what I do is how righteous I am. But you know, that never would work. See, the Bible tells us that uh, earlier on, it tells us that, uh, it actually in, in Romans, it says that, uh, that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. So we've all sinned, which is bad. And, and I think we all would admit we're all sinners. We get that. But the problem is, is that it tells us later in, in Romans 6, it says, for the penalty or the wage of sin is death. And the problem with sin is it has a cost. And the cost is, is pretty high. And, and what do we do with that? Um, can you unsin? And the problem is, is once we've sinned, we've sinned. It's like when you commit a crime, you've committed a crime, right? As for example, if you just, you know, you go up and, and uh, you know, you, you know, kill somebody, right? You can feel really bad about that. And you can tell the judge, hey, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have killed them. That was a bad idea. I feel I'm, I won't do it again. I'm very repentant. And he would say, that's good that you're not going to do it again, but he's not going to say not guilty. You're guilty once you committed the crime. You can't uncommit a crime. If you've stolen something from a store and they catch you, you can't just say, oh, I felt bad about that. Here's your stuff again. And then they don't just let you walk away. You can't uncrime. 
In the same way as we can't unsin, our sin has a penalty, and that penalty is death, and it's a separation between us and God, and, and that's why religion always fails. And that's why we have this conundrum then, because last week we talked about how Jesus is a Savior, right? He came to save us. He fulfilled these amazing prophecies about saving people, right? But how did he do it? How is it that we who are guilty, we people who, who already, we can't be good enough to earn our way to heaven, we can't unsin enough, how is it that we could even be saved? How can God still be righteous and allow us into his presence? Well, fortunately, God has got an amazing answer for us, and that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, let me set up the, uh, today's message on sacrifice. Jesus didn't just come to save. He, he, uh, he actually did the work of saving. Okay? He didn't just rescue us, sweep us you know, up to heaven or whatever and away from, from God's wrath and we'd have to live for eternal refugees. No, he, he did something amazing. He paid a penalty. He paid the price. And uh, this was not a new concept. This was not a new ordeal. Now, uh, for you to see kind of how this happens in Jesus' life, let's go back to, um, to Jesus' ministry when it began. Okay, so the first 30 years of Jesus' life, pretty boring. How boring? So boring we don't know anything about it. Okay? Just like average guy growing up, right, other than the fact that he had this miraculous birth and all these kinds of things, after that he was a carpenter's son. And we just don't find out much. He just was a good guy. Had brothers and sisters that came after him and all that. And then he was around the age of 30. All of a sudden, God calls him and says, now the ministry begins. And how does it begin? Well, there was this guy named John. And John baptized people right, for repentance. Repentance means they're changing the way that they live. And John was an interesting fellow. He would wear camel's hair close. It's like us wearing Carhartts. You know, he was a country boy. Okay? And... And he, doesn't, he didn't mind fashion. He wasn't about having the biggest, nicest things. He wasn't bought into the system that says you'd have to have nice. He was just plain and simple. He was so simple, he lived out in, in the wilderness, and he had a great diet of locusts and honey, because doesn't that sound delicious? You know, at least he had honey. And, uh, and he lived out there, and he depended upon God, and he was a prophet. And in fact, the old covenant prophesied that he would come and prepare the hearts of people in repentance. Now, why would John be such a weird fellow? Well, think about the things that corrupt most of us. It's, uh, we get corrupted by money, right? That comes into our lives and we like it and things like this. And then oftentimes we, we end up, you know, changing our tomb because we want to make sure that we don't risk good income. Well, John didn't care much about that. He lived in the wilderness. So he was quite happy to do that. The other thing was image, right? Popularity, power, influence, those types of things that really manipulate people. And, and so we get into a position and we like that influence. We like that, we like that popularity. And so we start doing things so people will like us instead of we get mission drift. John didn't have that. He wore camel's hair. He lived in the desert and he ate bugs and honey. And that's, right? So the things that would corrupt most, he was beyond. And so since he was beyond the touch of corruption of, of society, he was able to speak very directly to society. And he would tell the people of Israel, he said, listen, you've wandered from the ways of God. You, your hearts are filled with sin. You're following yourself. You're following religion, but you're not, you're not actually, you're just doing the things, but your hearts aren't into it, right? You're not truly repentant. And he would call the people back to God. And it says in your covenant, this guy would come in order to prepare the way for the Messiah. And that's exactly what he did. Well, 
One day, John was down there and he was baptizing and there were crowds, thousands of people were coming from all over Israel and they were coming to be baptized, to, to, to have repentance, to say we're going to turn our lives, we're going to start following God the way that he wanted to. We're going to get ready for what God has for us. And in the midst of that comes Jesus. And as Jesus walks in closer, John looks at him and he says something very strange. He says, behold, which is another way of saying, hey, look. There is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. You ever heard that? Yeah, we hear it. But isn't that a weird thing to say? I mean, most of us, when we think about Messiah, we would think of a lion. I mean, if you're going to, he's the one that's going to free us. Going to get rid of those stinking Romans. It's going to set up Israel to be powerful. That's what they were looking forward to. A lamb? And not just a lamb who takes away the sin. What is he talking about? You know, I didn't grow up Jewish. I, I, uh, in fact, it was much later in my life after I looked at different religions and things like this uh, is when I came to faith. So I had to, when I heard this, it was a very strange thing. What do you mean a lamb takes away sin? What are you talking about? Well, there are two different types of, of lamb, things that are being he's referencing here. The first is this, that uh, there was the Passover lamb. And see, way back when uh, God set the Israelites free from Egypt. They were all slaves, millions of them there waiting. God sent them Moses. And Moses freed them from the land of Egypt. And now if you've seen that Charleston has to move the Ten Commandments, right? it's based upon actual events. It's a cool movie. And uh, what happens is, is that uh, Moses tells Pharaoh, let your entire slave force go. And Pharaoh said, I don't think so. And so God sends a series of ten plagues, right? Do you remember this? And, and these plagues were to show Pharaoh that God is more powerful than, than even their gods, right? God is powerful and they should let the people go. And uh, Pharaoh would eventually, they got bad enough, he was like, maybe I'll let him go, but he would always change his mind. And finally, the very end, the tenth one, uh, after the ninth one, uh, Pharaoh gets so mad at, and, uh, and he tells Moses, get out of here again, you know, I never want to see you again. And, uh, and basically, if you come back, you're going to kill, you know, your son or whatever. And so, and, and so Moses said, well, you've just named the tenth plague, and that's going to be the death of the firstborn, which is a bad thing, especially if you're like me and you're the firstborn. Like, my brother wouldn't care so much. He'd be like, eh, right? But for me, I take this one very seriously, right? And so we look at that, and, and we say, okay, well, that's, that's a harsh thing. Well, God provided a way then for the people of Egypt, so the, or of Israel, so they wouldn't face this. And so that the people of, of Egypt would know that God's people were different, that, that, they were, that he actually was wanting to save them. And this is how God provided a way of, of saving the firstborn of Israel. As he said, I, he had very specific, if you read in, in, in Exodus what he wants them to do, he said, you pick a perfect lamb. No problem with this lamb. Don't give him junk. You've got to keep the very best. And you've got to kill this lamb in a very specific way. Okay, and so you got to slit his throat. You got to drain all of the blood out of it. Then you've got to roast this lamb in a very specific way and eat it and stuff. Be ready. But then you take the this, the blood is in this bowl, and you, you want to take that blood and you have to take these certain um, uh, plants, his and stuff, and you dip it in there. And then you've got to to take the blood and wipe it onto the doorposts of your house. Okay, and if you did that, then that evening when the angel of death came over. It would pass over your house, and then the firstborns would be spared. And so only people that actually believed that, uh, that this was a real thing actually did this, right? Because if they didn't, lamb were expensive, and it's kind of a weird thing to do. And so it was only those who had faith. 
who would actually do this thing. And so they took the blood and they put it on the doorposts that people of Israel did. And sure enough, the angel of death passed over and the Lamb of God provided a way of salvation. All right, so that's the first lamb. But the second one is this. After they cross from the, the land of, uh, of Egypt, they cross the Sinai and they get to, uh, they cross the, the Red Sea and they get to Mount Sinai. And God gives them, starts giving them the law. He meets with Moses. And in this law, God shows how it is that he's going to allow people who are criminals to be uh, forgiven. How they can be made right. Because they were the people of God and yet they were still sinners, right? They were God's people, but God's still righteous. And he couldn't just let their crimes go unpunished. And so how is it that this righteous God was going to allow the people to be with him? And he said, well, he set up a system called, it was a sacrificial system. And so what they would do is they would take these, if you, in fact, um, Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy and all these, have these, these really elaborate things. This is what you have to do. Sin is very expensive and it's very costly uh, to, to yourself and all this was very costly to the animals because if you sin, they die. And what he did is he said, listen, uh, the penalty for sin is death. If you sin, you have to provide me a lamb. You have to provide me a sacrifice. And he would take that sacrifice and he would bring it to the high priest or to a priest. And the priest would take it and he would execute it. And its blood would, would atone for your sins. And so then they would take the blood and they would sprinkle it where all the places he was sprinkled. And, and then your sins would be covered for a while. Now, it didn't ever fully pay for it because an animal doesn't equal a human. But by faith, God allowed those people to have their sins atoned. Now, once a year, we call it Yom Kippur now, but way back when it was called the Day of Atonement. And uh, there would be the high priest would offer one major sacrifice for the whole nation. And what he would do is normally the priests would just wash their hands, but that particular day the high priest would actually go into the, this big pool and he would wash his whole self in, in, in purification. And then he would offer a sacrifice for his own sins. And then he would be sprinkled with that. And then he would put on the priestly garments that represented the whole people. And then, I mean, this whole big thing. And then what he would do is he would take their two goats. One would be, uh, would, um, he'd place the, the sins, confess the sins of all the priesthood and, and the people. And the other one um, was the scapegoat. And, and it would be set free. And the first goat would be executed. Uh, for, to provide purification for him and for the priesthood so they could go and bring the sacrifice. This is a big deal. And then finally, the big, the, 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 at the end of the, the, the big event, is there would be a bull that would be executed. And its blood would be captured in a massive bull. And then he would take that and he would, um, into the Holy of Holies just once a year. And he would take this and he would sprinkle the blood once up top and several times below on the altar uh, uh, where, you know, you've seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you had the, the box. right there <laughs> to atone for the, to the sins of all the people. It was a big deal, okay? But the blood of, of lambs, bulls, goats were set as an atonement for people's sins. That's why they call it a day of atonement. But it didn't really ever pay for people's sins. It was kind of just rented grace, I guess is how you would put it, because they had to keep doing it year after year. Because uh, you know, bulls and goats can't pay for people's sins, but by grace, God provided them a way and he showed them there is a way that I'm going to be able to put my, my your sins onto something else so you can be, you can be forgiven. Because if we tried to pay for our own sins, guess what we would do? Die. And that's a pretty permanent solution, right? If it feels justice, but it's not great for us. So God provided this way. Now, when John the Baptist saw Jesus coming and he says, look, there is the Lamb of God Okay, sacrificial lamb and also the Passover lamb. What's this lamb going to do? Take away the sins of the world. 
That's what the sacrificial lamb does. That's what the Day of Atonement was all about. You're going to have one sacrifice that's going to do what all the other ones hadn't done. He's pointing to this sacrifice and said, here it has come. Why would John say that? That's a pretty gutsy thing to say, right? Because they had built a very expensive, very large temple, right? Lots of priests were employed you know, taking care of people's sins, right? It was in the Old Covenant. This is how, what we're going to do with sin is we're going to have all these other offerings. Why is it that John would have the guts to be able to make this claim? There is the Lamb of God who's going to take away, take away, not just atone for, take away the sins of the world. Why would he be able to say that? Well, John knew something. The Holy Spirit knew something. He predicted centuries before that this was God's plan. And John just recognized that it showed up. Now, you remember last week we talked about Jesus is our salvation. We looked in Isaiah 53, and how amazing was that, huh? Like, how cool. Look, it says, is Jesus being Savior? That's what that whole 53, Isaiah 53 is about. But look how he's going to be Savior. Did you catch this last week? He was pierced for our transgressions, was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was where? On him, Right. And by his wounds, we are healed. You see, the prediction was, is that there was going to be a sacrifice. The Savior was going to be the sacrifice. Even says at the bottom, it says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There's going to be someone else that's going to be sacrificed. And by that sacrifice, we're going to have salvation. But you know what? Isaiah wasn't even the first one to come up with this concept. In fact, three centuries earlier, and about a thousand years before Jesus came, there was a psalm that was written by, by David. Now, um, if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Psalm 22. If you have one of the Bibles that we, we give away here, that's uh, page 381. By the way, if you don't have a Bible or you don't like your Bible and you would like one that's easy to read, um, just take one uh, as our, our gift to you. But um, Psalm 22. And when you get there uh, on page uh, 381, you're going to notice that... Uh, it begins like right here at the very bottom. So if you're looking through the whole page, that's where Psalm 22 begins, is down there. Now, as you're turning to Psalm 22, let me tell you a little background in Psalm 22. Uh, it was written by King David. We don't know exactly when. Uh, Psalms were actually written by people inspired by the Holy Spirit, and they were songs. They're poems, but they were songs set to music. And so the, the people of, of Israel would sing these on particular dates and things like this. Um, it's like their, their greatest hits kind of thing, but it was like inspired stuff. Now, think about most music. It's poetic. It explains things, but true things sometimes with very um, vivid images and things like this. And uh, Psalm 22, most scholars think it was written at one or two times uh, because David obviously expressed what was happening in his life. That's one of the greatest things about the Psalms is you see people of faith and how they wrestle with this world. And the content of it leads most scholars to believe there was two times possibly it was written. The first one is the very before he became king. Uh, he worked for a guy named Saul, who was a king, who was jealous of David and, uh, and w- tried to kill him and sent armies after him. And you think you had a bad day at work. That's a bad day, right? And so he spent some time out in uh, the wilderness hiding with his armies and things like that, just trying to stay alive. And that would be a tough time. to. So the contents of this, maybe. There was another time in his life, after he was a king, his, his son Absalom decided that he wanted to be king and not his father. So Absalom created this rebellion, this revolt that happened, and basically uh, took over the kingdom for a short period of time. And David was on the run. He didn't want to kill his son, but eventually his son had, uh, got mur- um, killed in battle for this. But it was during that time of away in exile and wondering what to do, feeling the betrayal of all this kind of stuff, as po- a possibility was written. But because one we don't know was written, it's also the content of this psalm. It's not one that 
makes a whole lot of sense uh, for most things. Like most psalms, people would, would sing and would know the Jews would do. Like we like the 23rd psalm, don't we? The Lord is our shepherd, I shall not, right? That's one we know. Well, they had all these songs, that ones that they would use for different things. This was one that was just kind of bizarre. And so the people of Israel knew it was from God, and they kept it in their scrolls, but it was one that they didn't really sing very often. It, it, it's a very heavy psalm. And, uh, and because of that, most weren't like really super familiar with it, which we'll talk about in a minute, why that's probably was important. But they had, uh, it was just one of those it was a prediction. Well, as we see now, that it was, one of, it was a prophecy. And it was a messianic prophecy that David made about the Messiah, the sacrifice that was going to come. And so like most prophecies, there's probably original fulfillment that was uh, in David's life. He was expressing some truth in what he was going through. But then later on, we see with vivid imagery, a thousand years before the events took place, God explains the sacrifice so we wouldn't miss it. It's an amazing thing. So hopefully you're there. Um, we see that in this, um, in this, this whole uh, psalm is basically a prophecy. So we're going to work through it just a little bit and hit the highlights. The first one that we see there is that the sacrifice, he's predicted a thousand years before it took place, that the sacrifice would be forsaken by God. And, and get these first lines. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar? Yeah, there's a reason for that. This is what Jesus quoted while he was on the cross. Now we think about, why would God forsake the Son? Ah, well, here's the thing. Jesus didn't just fulfill just a formal death, right? It wasn't just that he said, okay, you are guilty, and therefore we know you're good, and it's a very great thing that you're doing for humanity by dying for them, and so the judge is pleased with Jesus and kills him. No, uh, Jesus doesn't just forgive sins, he takes the full brunt of, of all of the cost of our sins. Now think about this. When somebody wrongs you, let's say I go up to you and I punch you in the face and I take your wallet. Okay? You would be, and that would be bad, right? Well, let's say I have a moment of repentance and then I say, oh, I feel so bad about that and I get you some, you know, a bandage for your nose so it stops bleeding and I take care of you and I give you your wallet back. Are we good? No. You're like, you're the jerk that punched me in the face and took my wallet. I'm angry with you. Well, how many times in our life when people will do things, right, and, and then uh, they might be repent or whatever, we still have a wall between us, this emotional debt that is also there, this anger that we have, a righteous anger. It's a right anger. You know, when we sinned against God, it wasn't that we just, you know, ordered a burger at McDonald's, you know, and we owed a dollar and then we're good. Right? There was a debt, but there was an emotional debt that we owed God. He was mad. How mad does God get because of our sin? What does our sin even mean? Well, our sin is a rebellion against him. It's a rejection of who he is. It's, it's a pretty big deal. And so God gets upset about it. How upset? Well, one of our, our members has been reading through the chronological Bible. It's going through the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And, you know, and, and he was like, man, God can be pretty severe. Yeah. I tell you, it doesn't get much more severe than, I don't know, drowning everything in a big flood, except for everything in a small boat, right? That's pretty mad. Like, you've ever been so mad you flooded the earth, right? <laughs> or torching a whole city. That's, that's pretty huge. Or having the ground open up and swallow the people that were just not being good, right? You don't mess with God's anger. 
And I think that we sometimes play footsie with God and we taunt him and whatever. Like, what's God going to do to me? God can do big things. He can create the universe and he can destroy it. He is powerful. And God was mad and he was rightfully mad because we've all sinned. We've all violated his covenant. We've all rejected him. We've all waged our own personal war against the Almighty God, which makes us really dumb. But it doesn't make God any less angry. Now here's the thing, if Jesus just came and paid a price, but that was all, can you imagine how terrifying heaven would be? If you have this powerful God that we recognize now, we've done this bad thing, and we can't make it right, and okay, we're there, we're in heaven by His grace, but... That would be bad. But you know, the Bible is an amazing thing. It says we were propitiated, which is a weird word. But this is what that word means. It means that God's anger has landed somewhere else. It has been satisfied. And where was it satisfied? God took his anger that was, should have been directed at us. And he took that swing and he landed it on himself. He took the blow for us. He took his anger, which is an amazing thing, which means this, that God isn't angry with us anymore. But the fact that God was not going to be angry with us means that he had to reject the sacrifice. He had to be mad. He had to be actually angry to deliver all of his, his wrath onto the sacrifice. So when Jesus was there on the cross, it wasn't just the physical torment. The very first thing that is listed is the fact that he had a separation between him and the Father. He took the wrath of God full force for us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then, you know, it goes on. That wasn't the the end of it. It's not just that he would be forsaken of God. It was this, that he would be mocked and insulted by people. Now, that's an interesting uh, prophecy because think about the people of Israel when they would go and they would bring their sacrificial lamb. Would they mock the lamb? Would they be like, Oh, you stupid lamb! No, they understood something, that this lamb was laying down its life, involuntarily, but laying down its life so that they could have spiritual life. You respected the lamb. In fact, most people would be deeply touched and moved. This lamb was going to die, and it was a very real thing, showing the price of sin. And in fact, if they hadn't sinned, that lamb could live. You think about that, the weight of this. And day after day, as the smoke rose from the altar and as the priests did their, their duties, every single day, reminder of the cost, the high price of sin. You wouldn't mock that animal. They were grateful for that animal. But not with this sacrifice. Not only would this sacrifice be rejected, be rejected by God, right? Would be, himself would be just... God would, would say, place his anger on him. We as people, the ones that this sacrifice was, was, being, was dying for, would ourselves mock it. It says in verse 7, it says, All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him if he delights him so much. What did the people shout at Jesus while he was hanging on the cross? Isn't it amazing that a thousand years before Jesus was even on the cross, God not only predicted what the sacrifice, what Jesus would say, but also those who were, who were putting him there? He quotes them before a thousand years before they were born. And it wasn't just that they were mocked and insulted by, by people. And, and it wasn't just the people. This is actually was quoted as the religious leaders who represent the people. This is what they shouted at Jesus as he hung on the cross. Not only that, it says this, that he would suffer in death. 
that, and it's not just that he would suffer. There's a very specific way that he was going to suffer in death. Um, and, and that's an interesting thing, too, because usually the lamb would be sacrificed by slitting its throat and its blood would be drained out and it would bleed out very quickly and it would be, as deaths go, more humane. And so the sacrificial lamb, normally they would expect a quick and humane death because they respected it, but not for this sacrifice. Why? Because the anger of God was going to be satisfied on this, this sacrifice and he was going to suffer. And this is how he's going to suffer. It didn't just say he was going to suffer. You go to verse 14 and it says this, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. It has melted within me. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of the earth. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet and my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. Do you understand how specific he said this was going to be? Do you know that crucifixion wasn't even invented for another couple hundred years? But he describes, I mean, think about when we read this, when most people read this, they think, well, we're reading something from the New Testament describing the crucifixion. Now, we're reading something that was written a thousand years before the crucifixion, so we would know we didn't, <laughs> what it was and what it meant. He says this, uh, he is, uh, he's poured out like water. And what happened when they pierced his side? And it says, my bones are all out of joint. What happens when you're crucified? Pulls your bones out of joint, doesn't it? And it says, my heart is turned to wax. And we know that when the water and the blood flowed out of his heart, we knew that his heart had already broken. And that, uh, you know, it had already stopped. He was fully dead. But it had melted within him. His mouth was dried up like a pot shirt. What did Jesus say when he was on the cross? I thirst. You know, a thousand years before he came, the most unlikely of of executions for a sacrifice. This is not what you would do to a sacrifice. And yet, this is what happened. I mean, to the letter. And it says, you lay me in the dust of death. And of course, we know that Jesus was laid when he, when he uh, died. They put him into a tomb. And it says, dogs surround me. What are the uh, uh, Israelites, what did they call Gentiles? Dogs, right? Even when Jesus, there was this woman that came for a miracle and Jesus said, hey, I've come for the children of Israel. I can't, is it right for me to give you dogs what belongs to the children? And she said, well, don't the dogs get the scraps from the table sometimes? And then Jesus gave her a miracle and she said, oh, you have a great faith. But isn't it amazing? Like they would call them dogs. And here it predicts a thousand years before the sacrifice that, that, the, that this sacrifice that was going to save us wouldn't just die. He was not just going to die uh, in this particular way and have his bones pulled out of joint and all these types of things and have his heart broken and all this. But he was going to be executed in the presence surrounded by Gentiles. That's, that's just fascinating. Then it goes on, even, it goes even the next thing. It says, a pack of villains encircles me. And who was Jesus crucified between? Thieves. Are you seeing the picture here? What are the odds? It's so far, it's like, it's like God knew exactly what was going to happen. It's kind of like God wanted to make sure that we would know what happened. And it says, they pierce his hands and feet. How do you put somebody on the cross? I think that's a fascinating thing because crucifixion didn't even exist at this point. Why would he write that? But of course, Jesus' hands and feet, we all know, were pierced and his bones were on display. When somebody hangs on the cross, what does it look like? And are they fully clothed when they're on the cross? No. Humiliated and death. And the people who stared and gloat over him. And what did we find when Jesus was on the cross? People standing there saying, hey, if God loves you so much, let him come save you. And then uh, I think that's just an amazing thing. It's not just that the sacrifice would suffer, which would be a strange prediction just to begin with. 
But this sacrifice would suffer some very specific things, things that we find with Jesus did a thousand years before it took place. But then there's more. It doesn't predict that he's going to suffer in death. He also said the sacrifice is going to be plundered, which was very strange, uh, that he was going to have everything taken from me. It says this uh, in uh, verse 18. It says, They divide my clothes among them and cast lots from my garment. These are the... These are the soldiers. They weren't reading the Old Covenant saying, how do we fulfill this prophecy? Right? In fact, they were doing everything to separate Jesus from the prophecy, right? to put down any, any rumor that he was actually the Messiah. And what do these soldiers do with Jesus' clothes? Kid you not, they cast lots, written a thousand years before. That's a heck of a prophecy. But it tells us this, that Jesus was robbed of everything in this world. He... he he didn't just sacrifice his, his life. Everything was taken, even the clothes on his back. That's a pretty significant prophecy, but it also talks about uh, what he, the high price he paid, the enormity of this price. And not only that, but he would be plundered by the soldiers throwing lots for his clothes. But here's the good part. See, after the sacrifice, and you'll see there's a lot of verses in between there and where we get to, you get to see the power of the resurrection. It was prophesied that this particular sacrifice would be different than all others. See, most sacrifices, you kill it, it's done. But there's more to the story for this particular sacrifice. It's one of the things that made the Jews like, what, this makes no sense. But we get to 26 and it says this, the poor will eat and be satisfied. Now, do the poor deserve to eat and be satisfied? Do they have money enough to buy their own meal? Do the poor eat by their own power? No. They eat by grace. And it says that these people, those that we poor, would enjoy something that they do not enjoy. In fact, they wouldn't just get the table scraps. They wouldn't just get a little. Oh, no. It says that they're going to eat and be satisfied. That this sacrifice was going to provide grace for people in a way that, that fulfills all of their needs and beyond. Think about that. How cool it is. And then it says, those who seek the Lord will praise. Which is funny because it seems like just a few verses before that, we were finding that the people who, who were putting this sacrifice up there were actually insulting God. And yet it says, those who seek the Lord will now praise. They're going to praise Him. And, they was, and may your hearts live forever, it says, that this sacrifice is going to result in eternal life. That's a pretty big claim. And yet we see before, what did we find? To the letter, all the objective things that we were written about the sacrifice came true. How do we know the subjective thing that it would result in grace and eternal life? Well, it seems to me that if he could get all of those other things to line up, we can trust him on this one. That's an amazing thing. But then this is where it gets so cool. It says this, and it says, All the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. You hear this? This was a prophecy that this sacrifice would not only bring grace to God's people, right? Grace to those who don't deserve it, but it's going to bring grace to all the nations of the earth. What religion, what faith system before Jesus has ever had the audacity to go and to bring salvation to the ends of the earth? Do you think that, that there's... Baha'i in every corner of the globe? Or that Hinduism has reached all over and everybody gets it? Or that Buddha was really there to, you know, it's gone global? Or do we find that, that Islam is everywhere? 
No, it's not. We find pockets, places where these are. In fact, historically, religions have all abound about your tribe. Even Israel was that way too. They said, this is our God. We're Israel, you're not. He's going to save us, not you. But God said, "Uh uh-uh. He said, here's what's going to happen. Is a sacrifice is going to happen. And then, after the sacrifice, grace is going to be offered, not just the people of Israel, and there's not just eternal life for them, but to every nation and tribe. You hear that. And most of us here didn't grow up in a Jewish household. If you did, what a great heritage you would have, but I didn't belong there. I was counted amongst the dogs. And yet, the gospel has been preached all over the globe. In fact, even in our lifetime, most of us are going to see the day where the gospel will have been written in every single language. Isn't that awesome? The prophecy comes full. It's been fulfilled. That God brings grace, but in that grace, he says that God would receive glory. That from corner to corner, all around the globe, people would bow a knee and say, he's Lord. And that's exactly what we find today. A thousand years before the, before the sacrifice took place, God called it and he said, this is what's going to happen. I want you to the enormity of a thousand years. Twenty years ago, none of us would have thought Apple was going to do anything but to basically be just this little tiny, no one would have believed in it. Thirty years ago, if you told somebody about the internet, they would have laughed at you. Right? If you told people 50 years ago that they're not going to have a landline in their home, Right? You go 70 years ago and you tell people not only are most people going to drive cars, but the cars are going to drive them, right, themselves. Uh, we go 100 years ago and you say that we would have a man that was actually on the moon, we're going to have a space station. You would have thought you were nuts. You understand, you go back 1,500 years ago, you say there is a, a continent called uh, North America. There was, no, the world doesn't work like that. You understand that people, we are, the, the, the time span, this is a thousand year difference. And God gets it to the letter. And he did that for you and me so we would have confidence, not just what the sacrifice did, but we would know it was his sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God. And he takes away the sins of the world. And that's something that you can place your confidence on. We're placing our eternities on this. And he gave us good reason. What an amazing thing. And you know what that means? That this Lamb of God came and he took away the sins of the world. It means this. That you have been saved by God's grace through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. What do you do with that? What do you do with that kind of gift? Well, I have some suggestions because I like to help you. You take out your connection card on the back side. I have some ideas. How do we bring this to our own lives? How do we apply this? I think the first thing is, why don't you read or memorize Ephesians 2.8? I think a lot of us, we want to continue to pay for our own sins, don't we? We feel guilty. We feel like I've got to continue to beat myself up for the bad things that I've done or the ways that I've fall, you know, fallen short with God or how the ways that I, that I am just not good enough. Get this. Jesus paid the price. You may be thinking in your own life of things that you've done that irritated God, right? Even maybe you think that he should be mad at you. Guess what? Jesus paid the price. He's, you've been propitiated. You are saved by God's grace through faith. You Don't come to this church to find new ways of living to make God happy with you. He loves you. Right? That's an amazing thing. Maybe you need to have that truth because it speaks against every single thing that goes into our hearts about how things ought to work. We think that we should earn God's love. That once I'm good enough, once I'm holy enough, once I'm righteous enough, God will love me. 
And then I can go and talk to him. But God says, no, he did everything. He came. In fact, I'll tell you, when I studied all the different religions, five major ones, I found something that was kind of interesting. All the other ones said this, do this. Do these things and you might be right. Do these things and you might be good enough. Do, 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 do. All these rules, all these things. But Jesus says, done. He said, it's finished. You know, I think that oftentimes we put false barriers between us and God. And I think this passage has the power to break those down for you. So maybe this week you, you do business with God and you take this word and you say, you know what, it's by God's grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself, it's a gift of God. So you can enjoy that gift. And you know what, you're going to need that passage because we like to accuse ourselves all the time. Or maybe this, maybe you need to go into the Bible this week and read Romans chapters 1 through 3. Now Romans is a book in the New Covenant, New Testament. Paul wrote it under the um, inspiration of the Holy Spirit and explains our theology. And I referenced it a couple times today, what Romans talks about. If you understand why it is so important that we have a sacrifice to pay for our sins, you want to see in context what I've been talking about, I invite you, read Romans 1 through 3 this week. And if you get tired of just 1 through 3, you can read the rest of it too. I won't, I won't get it. But it's a, great, it's a great description. It helps you understand what Jesus did uh, from a, a phenomenal way. Or maybe this week, maybe you need to accept forgiveness. Maybe you've been walking with Jesus for a very long time, and yet you still feel guilty. But you know what uh, John said? He says that uh, we have confidence in Christ. Even when our hearts condemn us, our, our confidence is in Christ. He's bigger than our hearts. How cool is that? That we trust in the Lord that you have been saved, and that nothing on heaven or earth are going to take you out of his family. He loves you. And sometimes we need that kind of love, that forgive, that, that acceptance so that we can be honest with him so we're actually bold enough to be able to confess our sins and know the truth also in 1 John. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just. He'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Maybe that's what you need to do is just accept forgiveness. Maybe you need to accept forgiveness from another person. You know, if God's forgiven you, why not accept the forgiveness of somebody else? Maybe you've wronged them and they've, you've had a wall up between you and them for a long time. And you just need to humble yourself and say, you know what, I don't deserve their forgiveness. But if they're offering it, I'll accept it and let there be reconciliation. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've never accepted the forgiveness of God. And you've heard the gospel before, but today it makes sense. And you say, you know what, I need, I need to have a way right back with God. It's awesome. I'm done trying to earn my way. In fact, it's so cool that God showed me that he paid the way and he made it so very clear that he paid the way. Maybe you need to accept forgiveness from our Lord. And it says that you are saved by God's grace through faith and this is not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. If that's you on this other side, it says I'd like to start a relationship with Jesus. If you need to make that decision, let me know. Why? Because uh, this doesn't mean that you become a Christian. This means that you're interested in finding out what does it mean. I will meet you with you. I will call you up this week. We'll talk. I'll answer your questions. What does it mean to be a Christian? What is it... Um, you know, whatever it is, and I'll also walk with you the steps of how do you begin to follow Jesus? How do you enter that family of faith? How do you connect and grow in this amazing grace that we have? Let me know. And if you do check that, make sure I have your contact information, please. That makes it a lot easier because I can just start calling the phone number by faith, but it doesn't work well for me. <laughs> the other thing, maybe you need to offer forgiveness. Jesus forgave us, and it says we've been forgiven. We need to forgive others. And so maybe you're here this morning and, and there's somebody in your life that's wounded you. Maybe they're still wounding you. Maybe they're your enemy. And Jesus says, you know what, you've been forgiven. We have the opportunity to forgive others. We can rise above our own wounds. 
right? We don't have to wait for people to be worthy of our forgiveness to offer because we've received forgiveness and we weren't worthy. And it sets us free from bitterness. And it's the most amazing thing. And, and, and here's an offer for you today is to lay down those things that are causing your heart to become hard and to begin to offer forgiveness. You're not saying what other people have done is right. You're not justifying sin. You're saying I'm forgiving because my Lord has forgiven me. And that takes a lot of courage and it's a long process. And that's why I want you to let me know you're doing it because I will be praying with you as you go through that process. Yes. Maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe there's something else, another commitment you need to make. Let me know. I will, I will be praying for you this week. Or maybe there's a prayer request that you have. See, our, our Heavenly Father, He didn't just come to this earth. He didn't send His Son to die for our sins and that was it. He sent us the Holy Spirit to dwell with us. Now we are, we're His, His family. And He says, you know what? He wants us to talk to Him. He wants us to include Himself in our life. As we go through this, in fact, the promise was, He said, go to all the nations, baptize them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then teach them to obey everything I've commanded. And as you do that, what was the promise? I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Our God is with us. He wants to hear from us. And, you know, God, we've seen God do amazing things. He still works miracles. He does amazing things. He's no less powerful today than he's ever been. And so if you have a, a prayer request, something that's on your heart that you would like us to join with you in praying for God, uh, to God for, let us know. And we'll pray for you this week. It's one of the ways I'm honored to do that. In a minute, we're going to take our, our offering. As we take our tithes and offerings, as, you, as the basket's passed, Along with your tithes, your offerings in the basket, please put this connection card and uh, let me continue to serve you this week. I would appreciate it. Before we do that, however, it's always good to pray. We want to pray for our offering, um, but also it's just a time for us to talk with God. So I'm going to open up. I'll begin praying, and if any of you have something on your heart that you would like to voice, you're more than welcome to voice that, or if there's just something you want to pray from the quiet of your own heart, it's a great time to be able to do that. So please join me as we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness and your love. Father, we see that even while we were your enemies, the scripture is true. Christ died for us. We see that it, even in a thousand-year plan, Father, to the letter you fulfilled it so we would have confidence to know that this sacrifice was from you. And because we know it was from you, we know that it worked. And Father, we see the fulfillment of the rest of that prophecy, the crazy things, that, that we have been saved by grace through faith. And Father, that we have eternal life. And Father, that you are being praised even today in every corner of this world. Uh, Father, you are great. And Lord, I pray for us. Help us to live in that grace. Father, help us to, to accept your forgiveness. Let us enjoy that great relationship you paid such a high price for. But Father, I pray as you do that, that you would also free us from the bondage of our own, our own judgment. Father, help us to be a people of grace. Let us be a people that are bold enough to forgive our enemies, to love those who don't deserve it because you loved us. Father, give us that kind of strength. And Father, if we need to encourage one another in doing that good work, help us to do that. And Father, I thank you that, uh, that it's not by what we do, that we're not here this morning because we're better than anybody else, but we're here this morning because you are better than anyone and that you love us better than anyone has ever loved. And Father, that you've called us into your kingdom. And so, Father, as we continue in our prayer, I thank you that you hear us. We love you.